Church exists to shine as light in our homes, in our community, and in our world. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Well, if you would, please take out your Bibles now and turn in them to Psalm 15, right in the middle of your Bible. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one under a chair in front of you, and you can take that Bible and in the front portion turn to page 397, and you will be at Psalm 15. Do you know that a very striking event happened on March the 5th, 1938? FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, was the president. It was the anniversary of his fifth year in office as president. And while he had been president for those five years, it was one of the most dramatic periods of United States history. It was the worst period of economic devastation and disaster that we've ever known. You know what the unemployment rates are now? About 10%. Well, the unemployment rate reached a high of 25%. That means if you look around this room, one quarter of us would have been without jobs. And not only did you have that going on, but you had the, the coming storm clouds of World War II that were very clearly out on the horizon on March the 5th, 1938. And in our country, there was a deep hunger for hope. There was a culture-wide felt need for fortitude and strength to face the everyday challenges that we were having as a people of God and as an American people. And in the midst of that economic depression and on the brink of world war, FDR went to St. John's Episcopal Church seeking some guidance. And there was something in this sermon that day that grabbed his attention. And later on, he held a press conference, and this is what he said. I asked that every newspaper in the country print the text of the 15th Psalm. In other words, he was saying the five verses in Psalm 15 ought to be headline news throughout the United States. And why did he do that? Well, FDR believed what we are discovering, and that is that Psalm 15 is a course on character worth building. And knowing what the nation faced, he felt there was no better promise than could be given at the end of the psalm where it says, he who does these things will never be shaken. Now, Psalm 15 is one of the original oldies of the Bible. It's the book of Psalms. It's an anthology of the lyrics to songs. And as we've seen as we've begun a study of Psalm 15, this is not laying out for us prerequisites on how you enter the family of God. Rather, it is giving to us principles of conduct that I am to develop and display and you are to develop and display since we are a member of the family of God. In other words, in Psalm 15, we have some marks of maturity. It tells us some ways that we are to display our ultimate citizenship. While we are Americans, ultimately we are citizens of God's kingdom. And what he gives to us are some layers of character concrete that when you put them into your life, it will strengthen your life. And I want to remind you that he begins with a question in Psalm 15 and verse 1. And remember, we said that the setting of this was likely when they would come to Jerusalem and travel from all around, thousands and thousands, for Passover. And the idea in this question in verse 1 is something like this, because there were so limited places to stay. Who 
gets invited to stay over at God's place when we come to Jerusalem? Or who, God, would get invited to dinner at your place? And then he lays out 10 traits, 10 aspects of character for us. And we've already been looking at these. In verse 2, we see three things in our personal life that we are to embrace. And then in verse 3, he gives us three things in our interpersonal relationships that we are to avoid. And then in verses 4 and 5, he gives us four traits that we are to practice in our public practices in our life. So what we've come to is the second part of that where we look at the fact that a citizen in God's kingdom is to avoid three things. And I want to encourage you to write these things down so you can keep a handle on them. I'm going to give them to you, and then we'll look at them individually. The first thing a citizen of God's kingdom is to avoid is undermining others with our words. The second thing a citizen of God's kingdom is to avoid is inflicting harm on others. And then the third thing we are to avoid is retaliating or harboring grudges against other people. So what we want to do in the next few moments together is to sit at the feet of David and ultimately the Holy Spirit and learn what he wants to teach us. If you have your Bible open, I want to read the first few verses of Psalm 15. O Lord, who may abide in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy hill? He who walks with integrity and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. He does not slander with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. Now, if you spend some time reading Psalm 15, and a number of you have been doing that, when you read through it, I want you to remember to look at the verbs that are in this psalm. And I want you to look at the, the elements of our life that he brings up. He brings up our heart, he brings up our eyes, he brings up our tongue, just to give you a little extra insight into it. But let's go ahead and tackle these three things that a citizen of the kingdom is to avoid. The first one is undermining others with our words. If you have a New American Standard, you'll notice it says in verse 3, he does not slander with his tongue. Now, that word slander in Hebrew, and by the way, Hebrew is a very picturesque kind of a language, it has these beautiful pictures that it draws. And this word is a picturesque word. It's the word in the Hebrew, ragal. And ragal means to go about on foot and to spy. Isn't it interesting? The idea here is that we would be out searching for weaknesses in other people, walking about. And the goal would be that as we discover things about people, we use this insider information to slam them verbally, to run them down, to cut them down, to discredit them. And the implication here is this is a very purposeful thing that someone might do, not an accidental thing. What he's really saying is there should be no interpersonal espionage going on in the life of a citizen of the kingdom. And when you see that picture, you get the idea where we, we, we would call this gossip today. We would use the word that is used in English in the New American Standard, slander. Slander means to run, literally it means to run people down verbally. You know, in Proverbs 18, 21, it says, death and life are in the power of the tongue. 
Isn't that true? We can speak words that kill people, or we can speak words that give life to people. And let me just ask you the question, are the things that you share about others to others words of life, or are they words of, of death? How many people have ever bit your tongue? Let me just see the hands. I really, everybody that's bit your tongue, so that's almost everybody if it's not everybody. When you bite your tongue, how do you feel? It hurts, doesn't it? And so also when we use our tongue to bite other people, it hurts. We want to be transparent at Wildwood, and we have to admit that we all have a tendency, and here's what that tendency is. Our tendency is to discern weaknesses in other people. And then when we see those weaknesses, we're very quick to broadcast them to just point them out, sometimes in very creative, semi-spiritual ways, to other people. And what happens is we spread verbal venom around. And Jesus understood the fact that we have that tendency, and he said, you know what, I want you to think about something. And and keep your finger here in uh, Psalm 15, and turn with me in in the New Testament to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 7, And we're going to see in verses 3 to 5 that Jesus said this, before you spy out others and look for weaknesses in others, here's my recommendation. Take a long, hard look in the mirror. See, Jesus understood we have this tendency to try to discover weakness, and then we want to share it with other people. And he said, wait a minute, stop at the beginning of that. Notice what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7. He says in verse 3, why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Literally here, he's, he's saying in our lingo today, you look at some speck in your, in your brother's eye, but you don't see the telephone pole hanging out of your own. Or he says, verse 4, how can you say to your brother, let me uh, take that little speck out of your eye there, and behold, the telephone pole is in your own eye. And he says, you hypocrite. First take the telephone pole out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. You know, it's interesting. Someone said this one time, and I I always like this as a good reminder, that whenever you point the finger at someone, I can't believe that you did that or they did that or they're this, you know. Whenever you point the finger at someone... It's very interesting to see. Whenever you're pointing the finger at somebody, there's three fingers pointing back at yourself. That's a good good way to remember it. The next time you're pointing out someone's weakness or failures, to remember while you're pointing that out, you've got three pointing back at yourself. You know, I, I came across this a number of years ago, something that Alan Redpath came up with. And he says, here's what you need to do, some tests you need to put things to before you speak about other people. And it's around the acronym THINK, T-H-I-N-K. This is worth writing down, okay? These are good tests. Before you start saying something about somebody else, pass it through these five tests of THINK. And if it doesn't pass the tests, 
keep the lips zipped. The first one in think is, is it true? Is it true? See, a lot of times we hear something about someone and we don't even know whether or not it's actually true. I learned this in, in journalism school when they taught me many years ago, because you're a journalist and you're publishing information. They said, never assume anything. You get a tip about something, never assume anything. Investigate it, verify it before you repeat it. Secondly, in think is H, is it helpful? A good test. Does it benefit anyone? Is it going to aid anybody in their growth? Is it going to add to somebody's safety? And then the I in think, is it inspiring? Is it going to encourage and strengthen other people in their spiritual walk? And then you have the N in think. Is it necessary? Boy, that is a great one to ask. Before we're speaking about someone to somebody else, is this really necessary? You know, in the larger scheme of life, sometimes it's just better to not say it. And then lastly in think comes the K. Is it kind? Do you really have their best interests at heart? You know, we have shared the definition of love many times. Love is the commitment of my will to your needs and best interest regardless of the cost. Do I have their best interests at heart? And here's a final little tip. Whenever you find yourself thinking, or maybe even saying, getting ready to say, I shouldn't say this, whenever that's in your brain getting ready to come out, don't say it. I shouldn't say this, but if you're thinking that, don't. So a citizen of God's kingdom has some things that we are to avoid. It's part of our character development. And the first one is undermining others with our words. This is talking about gossip and slander. The second thing that we are to avoid is inflicting harm on others. And go back to Psalm 15 again, and notice there the phraseology in verse 3 in the New American Standard, citizen of Zion doesn't do evil to his neighbor, nor does he do evil to his neighbor. Now, that little word neighbor doesn't mean, well, you're just talking about the people who live next door to you. The idea of neighbor is anyone you're in relationship with, those that you live with, those that you work with. We are not to do evil to them. By the way, the word evil here, again, in the original, I just want you to have an, an idea of all of this, uh, is the word ra'ah, R-A-A-H. It refers to calamity, trouble, and harm. Interestingly enough, the word ra'ah comes from a word in Hebrew that means rotten. Rotten. This person who is a citizen of heaven, avoids doing rotten things to others. And thus we have my little summary, avoids inflicting harm on other people. 
Do you know that one of the names of Satan is destroyer? And when we do rotten things to other people, when we inflict harm on other people, guess what? We're playing his game. We're citizens of heaven, and yet we're playing the tune of the enemy when we do those things. He who is a citizen of heaven avoids inflicting harm on others. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means we avoid inflicting harm on other people physically. And you know, when you start thinking about inflicting harm on others physically, immediately my mind will race to extreme examples of that. You know, there's been a lot in the news recently of of individuals who have actually killed their own family and then committed suicide. You know, like for example, there was a story of a 42-year-old businessman from Farmington Hills, Michigan. He was having some business problems, but had been going out to the casinos in Vegas on a regular basis, and he returned from Las Vegas distraught about his gambling debts, which were over $100,000. He came home, killed his 31-year-old pregnant wife, and then killed his five-year-old son and his seven- and three-year-old daughters. You see, a citizen of the kingdom avoids inflicting harm on others physically. Now, it doesn't have to be that extreme. Less extreme, but just as much to be avoided is doing physical harm. To punch people, to push them, to intimidate them physically, that's not a mark of a citizen of heaven. And I just want to be frank here because, you know, we address these issues at Family Life Weekend to Remember. And again, when you're, when you're talking to a large enough group, statistically, you know, there's some people who have a problem with this. We probably have some husbands who lay their hands on their wife, perhaps punching them perhaps pushing them, at the very least, intimidating them physically. And what God is saying, if you would fall into that category, is don't be like that. Don't be punching, don't be pushing, don't be intimidating physically. And you know, that can also happen with parents. Who discipline their kids in anger. It's a key, key word, in anger. You know, one of the greatest things that I regret, I'll never forget it, it's still in my mind to this very day. But I remember we were actually out of town on vacation. And my son Kyle, I don't remember his exact age, he may have been six, he may have been seven. But uh, he was on the floor, and I told him to do something, and he gave me a very smart reply back. And, and you know, what I did is I remember reaching down and grabbing that boy by the front of his shirt, and I just lifted him up, you know, and I'm shaking him, don't you ever talk to your father like that again. Oh, how I wish I had never done that. 
I'll never forget it. Of course, if you know my son, I couldn't possibly do that today. He's 6'2", 220 pounds. And if anyone's going to get picked up by the front of their shirt, you know, if we're in a confrontation, it would be me. But what I'm really saying is, this is what God is saying to us. Don't do that to your kids. That's not a mark of the citizen of heaven, the discipline men in anger. And I want you to know something. This is very, very important. If you are dominating and controlling your kids, if you are intimidating them, I want to tell you what's going to happen. They're going to run from you when they get big enough as fast as they can and as soon as they can. And so if these are issues for you in your marriage or as a parent, God is saying, stop it. And you know what you need to do if you're involved with that? You need to get accountable. You need to go to someone that you spiritually respect and share with them. This is something I struggle with. I need you to help me have a plan how to deal with it. Very, very important. We're to avoid inflicting harm on others. That means physically. I think it also means verbally. Proverbs 12:18 says, Rash, harsh words are like thrusts of a sword. It's like taking a sword and just jamming it into somebody's heart. And we can do that. We can attack people with our words. There can be brutal criticism. We can seek to hurt and harm them with the things that we say. And I want you to know something. I'm being honest with you. God takes that kind of stuff very seriously. You can look it up later, but 1 Peter 3.12 says, The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Someone who is a citizen of kingdom avoids doing evil to his neighbor. It's unbecoming of a citizen of heaven. And again, if we're doing that, let's get serious with God. We need to repent from that. We need to seek accountability again for that. So a citizen of God's kingdom avoids, we're learning from Psalm 15, three things. The first thing is undermining others with our words. Secondly, inflicting harm on other people. And then third, A citizen of God's kingdom avoids retaliating or harboring grudges against others. Look again in verse 15 and verse 3. Nor does he take up a reproach, it says, against his friend. Now again, this is Hebrew communication. It is extremely picturesque. The word, the verb, take up, literally means to wave. We're not to wave a reproach against our friend. Now, reproach is not a word that we tend to use a lot in English today, but if you look it up, it means blame, disgrace, or shame. We're not to wave disgrace and shame. We're not, the idea is we're not to impute to people blame and guilt. Let me put it just as plainly as I can. It means that we're not to hold grudges. We're not to wave it in people's faces. Again, Proverbs 19.11 says this, it is a person's glory to overlook a transgression. Wow. That doesn't mean it's to a person's glory to overlook a crime committed. I mean, the government has been instituted by God to bring justice to crime. 
But this is talking about personal offense. It's a person's glory to overlook a transgression, a wrong that has been done to you. I love the way the message translates uh, Proverbs 19.11. He says, it is their grandeur to forgive and forget. It is their grandeur to forgive and forget. And so what David is saying is one of the marks of a citizen of heaven is that we don't hold grudges. We don't wave them in people's faces. We don't retaliate. They did that to me. You did that to me. I'm going to do this back to you. We got to turn again into the New Testament. Go to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. And this is a very powerful passage. And I think it's important to read. I could refer you to it, but I think the power of it needs to be heard. We are not to retaliate. Getting even is God's business, not our business. I know that's different from what the movies say. But that's what God says. And in Romans 12, verse 17, it says this, Never, oh, I wonder how many exceptions there are to that. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far it depends on you. And sometimes you can do all you can to be at peace. But so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. And then he says, never take your own revenge, beloved. But leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. You think that God is good at anything that he does? He's very good at it. Getting even is God's business. I've told the story of Clara Barton many times, who was the founder of the Red Cross. And someone came to her one time and said, do you remember what such and such did to you, you know, several years ago? And I always loved her response. She said this, no, I distinctly remember forgetting it. She made a choice to say, retaliating is not my job. God is able to handle that. You know, sometimes people will come to me and they'll say, how in the world have you managed to stay at Wildwood Community Church for 31 years? How did you do that? And there's a number of answers to that, but I'll give you one of them. One of the ways I've been able to stay at Wildwood for 31 years is I have chosen not to harbor grudges. You see, because there have been some things done and said that I don't think we're right. But I chose not to harbor a grudge over that. Because you see, when you do that, trouble begins. And let me also say, on behalf of a number of you at Wildwood who have been here for a long time, you know, that door swings both ways. I have made my mistakes I have made my flubs. I have disappointed a number of people in 31 years. And one reason why I'm still here is that many of you have chosen not to harbor grudges when that has happened. We are, it says very clearly, to avoid harboring grudges against other people and avoid retaliating. 
And the spirit, I think, that David is sharing with us here is reflected in, in the story that Trent and Hicks give. It's a story of the relationship between Wes Colfax and Jake Sanders. Wes Colfax was a very driven man. He was one of those guys who started out as a, as a high school student working in the shipping room of this company, no air conditioning in the summertime. Eventually worked his way in Westover Industries up to the president's chair of the company. That's Wes Colfax. And uh, they pick up the story by saying this, Wes's obsessiveness for the best even extended to his yard. Compulsive about neatness and presenting a professional look in everything, he made sure his lawn was the envy of the neighborhood. But that's not to say he did the work himself. The joke around the local landscape companies was that the three toughest jobs in America were Colfax's yard man, Colfax's yard man, and Colfax's yard man. At the time, Jake Sanders at Sanders Lawn Service had lasted longer in Colfax's employ than any other gardener. Though he'd been threatened with losing the account more times than he could remember, he'd learned to let Wes's barbs slide, and he would continue to do the best that he could, and in so doing, hang on to his most lucrative account that he had. One day, his crew was finishing a particularly tough job. Jake surveyed their handiwork at Wes's house with satisfaction, knowing they'd worked hard and completed their task in good time, and as they loaded their equipment, Jake did notice on the horizon some clouds coming. It's a good thing we finished when we did, man, he said. Looks like there's a storm coming. And just as Jake was saying that, Wes Colfax was on a flight making his final approach into the local airport. By the time he landed and gathered his luggage and got to his car, the squall was striking in full force. When he finally pulled through the security gate to the neighborhood, he was tired, hungry, and in a particularly foul mood. He went to bed angry that night but came unglued the next morning when he walked down his driveway to get the paper. Strewn all over his land were leaves, pine needles, and trash. Furious that the yard looked like a war zone, he stormed into the house, yelled for his wife to get his phone book, and almost tore the phone off the wall before the woman at the answering service could finish saying, Sanders Lawn Service. Her ears were burning with a string of angry charges and expletives. When she asked him to calm down and stop his abusive language or she'd hang up, he said, fine, and then he spoke these little words with full fury. Leave this message. Sanders, you're fired. And what's more, I'll do everything I can to everyone I know from ever using your pitiful service. You get that? Well, 10 years went by, and Jake's business survived despite the damage done by Wes's accusation and vehement attempts to turn business away from him. More than once, Jake had to face caustic words or intense questions by a prospective client who had been poisoned by Wes. But Jake knew better than to eat up his own life by carrying a grudge. And despite the temptation to reproach Wes's arrogance and immaturity, he stayed quiet and kept his nose to the grindstone, and God honored and blessed his business and family. Wes, on the other hand, went through radical changes in his life, driven to emotional and spiritual exhaustion by his obsession with money and power, he had a major heart attack. 
And in the incredible fear and confusion it brought, his pride and arrogance were finally broken. His cardiologist was an outstanding believer who led his frightened friend to the comfort, freedom, and forgiveness of a relationship with Christ. And Wes's life changed from the minute he got out of the hospital. Like a modern Scrooge, he tried hard to start fresh and treat his family and others with respect. One morning, he decided to visit the church where his wife went, Covenant Bible Church. He walked into the door and into the sanctuary where the usher at the door greeted him with a warm hello and handed him a bulletin. That's when Wes's heart leaped into his throat. The usher was Jake Sanders. Wes quickly shuffled past, trying to convince himself there was no way Jake would remember. I mean, it had been 10 years. He nervously found his seat. As the service came to a close, West rose nervously from his seat and tried to sneak out the side door. But as he turned, there was Jake standing at the end of the aisle. Good morning, Jake said. My name is Jake Sanders, and I believe you're Wes Colfax, aren't you? Well, Wes couldn't stand it any longer, and looking everywhere but at Jake, he tried to stammer his way through an apology, but no sooner had he begun his second sentence than Jake motioned for him to stop. No need to apologize he said. But you don't understand, Wes said. I need to make this right. I'm a Christian now, and I need, and he swallowed hard, I need to ask your forgiveness. You're forgiven, Jake said with a smile and extended his hand. It's great to see you. And then he said, I have been praying for you for 10 years. Wes couldn't believe it. Jake had every right to be angry and resentful for the heartache he'd put him through. Jake didn't realize it then, but he'd won an admirer for life. And he gained some other things that day too, a Christian brother and a new landscape contract for his son who had taken over the business from Jake. Jake's son now today does Wes Colfax's yard come rain or shine, and his son always appreciates the warm greeting he gets and the liberal words of praise for a job well done. See, Jake took the time he could have spent hating and prayed for a man previously entombed in his own greed and pride, and you can rest assured that Wes Colfax has never forgotten Jake, and neither has God. See, that's the way God can work. That's why it says in Proverbs, their grandeur is to forgive and to forget. And let me this morning ask you this question. Who is your Wes Colfax? A citizen of God's kingdom avoids three things. First of all, undermining others with our words. Second of all, inflicting harm on others. And thirdly, retaliating or harboring grudges against other people. What's the promise? Psalm 15, verse 5, last phrase. He who does these things will never be shaken. Now, I want to talk about some life response that we can have to this powerful section of the Word of God this morning. And it's going to be basically a challenge for us to do a citizenship review. You know, we've looked at these three things that we are to avoid. And what I would like to challenge you with this week is to pray back a section of Scripture to God, like we mentioned last week, 
It's a good practice to do. And the particular passage I have in mind is Psalm 139, verses 23 to 24. To think about these three things that we are to avoid, and then to pray back to God these words, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my thoughts. See if there's any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. Would you do that? If you will do that, I know God's going to meet you there. And he's going to do a work. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you again for the word that's so pertinent to everyday life. This is not an ancient book that has no meaning to life today. It means everything. Thank you for King David who shared from his heart the things that we need to hear. And Father, we need you to lead us. This is not something we crank out on our own. We need the empowering of the Spirit of God to be who we've been called to be. And we want to pray. We want to ask that you would refine us, Lord, that you would change us, and that you would reign in us for the glory of the one who bled and died. And we pray these things in his great name. Amen.